Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 500 men sack for Union busters are back on the docks, this time a company called ICTSI. A worker has been sacked for standing up to the bosses against bullying and harassment. A community assembly has come together to support the dock workers and have started a 24-hour protest. We are holding the line, but we need your help. Get down to 78 Web Dock Drive, Port Melbourne, and join the community assembly at any time of the day or night. For more information and details... Call Workers Solidarity on 0401-516-967. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Yes, it is Solidarity Breakfast this morning and uh, it's Annie for the final live program for the year. We're going to go into a series of features across the uh, summer months for the for four weeks. We're going to go back and look at some stuff and also revisit some uh, events like, say, the Peter Norman race and human rights uh, memorial uh, fight with new material that uh, we weren't able to play because, you know, it's a finite amount of time that we have each week. And uh, today we're going to... Uh, We've got some um, uh, news, uh, groundbreaking news here now. You've just heard a a cart. I'm sorry, I'm a little bit uh, 
half awake here this morning. <laughs> not that it's not unusual that I'm half awake. But anyway, uh, the uh, announcement about the WebDoc uh, MUA has uh, j- uh, just last night uh, announced that the WebDoc uh, community picket uh, is no longer necessary because uh, negotiations have uh, with the company has reinstated the worker, the uh, union delegate that had been fired or let go because of uh, spurious reasons around his uh, security pass. Uh, so we're, we may be lucky enough uh, later in the program to actually speak to Will Tracy, who's the Assistant Secretary of the MUA, He's gone back to Perth, and it may be news to you, but we're three hours ahead of Perth, so uh, we may be lucky to uh, rouse him uh, very early in the morning to give us an idea of what happened in the negotiations yesterday. So that's new news. Uh, If you were thinking you were going to go down and support the community picket, there's no need uh, because negotiations have been, uh, there has been a positive outcome in that dispute. But hopefully, as I said, we may hear more about what actually happened in the ins and outs of that. There were other things happening today, though, uh, at 11 o'clock, 11 to 12, there's going to be a rally in support of... uh, Queen Victoria Market. It's going to be a fabulous lineup, I'll have to say. There's lots of supporters of uh, Vic Market in its present state, but uh, with a revamp as opposed to a complete and utter facelift, which includes uh, uh, basically changing it to an indoor market instead of what it is, uh, one of the largest open-air, fresh food, fruit and vegetable market in the Southern Hemisphere, with all that wonderful hustle and bustle, they want to contain it. And if you want to know more about it and support, uh, and, you know, it's part of the uh, real feel of uh, uh, Melbourne. It's got a long connection. People like Dan Sultan are going to go and sing in support. And Michael Caton, who uh, has come all the way from Sydney to be part of this rally, he was part of the rally that uh, supported and saved the Bondi Pavilion in Sydney uh, from a similar type of development. So that's been interesting. Statements have been uh, sent by uh, Barry Humphreys and Paul Kelly, people who would have been there, but they had other engagements. So you can be there. So go down there. We're going to have a chat with someone about what's going on there. The campaign is not dead. Uh, the mayor might think that uh, everybody, everything's stitched up, but uh, people are not happy. Not happy, Robert. Not happy. Uh, we're also going to go to uh, Fair go, go for Pensioners. Uh, There's been a survey, of course, of uh, the inadequacy of affordable housing in Victoria, probably the same, reflecting the same thing happening across Australia. And uh, we're going to talk to uh, Jeff Fielder, who is a hands-on practitioner in the surveying of that particular things. Uh, We've got some other things as well, but uh, before we do that, I'll remind you that this is the last day that you can involve yourself in the uh, last days of the West Papua and Sampari exhibition. And uh, there's a major event at one o'clock today if you want to involve yourself. Uh, So the ACU galleries are open also with uh, various things. But here we go. (laughs) 
You are invited to Sampari Exhibition, celebrating West Papuan culture. Sampari, a series of events supporting the West Papuan people's goal for self-determination. Art, discussion, spoken word performance, debate and Melanesian food and culture. Friday, 8th December at 6pm till Sunday, 17th December. ACU Gallery, 26 Brunswick Street, Fitzroy. Go to Sampari Exhibition Facebook or DFAIT West Papua website. Sampari, brought to you by Federal Republic of West Papua Women's Office, a 3CR supporter. It was uh, International Human Rights Day the other day and I had the great opportunity to go down and report for you what went on in Melbourne outside the State Library. It, the event was put together by, uh, the rally was put together by uh, the um, Refugee Action Collective and uh, these are our streets collective. Uh, so what they did was uh, had a, a variety of different uh, things happening, speakers, and uh, then they all walked down to Elizabeth Street, the intersection of Elizabeth and Burke, and they set up and had a party. So that was pretty exciting. But uh, let me, uh, there were a couple of other things that happened on the way which would be worth your attention. I'm outside uh, the State Library. It's uh, Sunday the 10th of December. It's Human Rights Day. It's a sunny day. There's lots of people here. There's a big uh, banner in front of Sir Edmund Barry statue. He stands there imperiously underneath it. Bring the refugees to safety now. The uh, people are sitting on the grass, soaking in the sun, waiting for there to be speeches. Police are in a huddle underneath some trees, but thank goodness no special operations people here. And uh, lined up are pictures. Hamad Shashirapur, 31, died on August 7, 2017, Manus Island Detention Camp. Kamel Hussain, 34, died, Manus Island Detention Camp, August 2, 2016. Kamid Kesai, 24, died September 2014, Manus Island Detention Camp. Aziz, 26, imprisoned in Manus Detention Camp. December 1948, the Human Rights Declaration came into being and parts of this universal declaration reads as follows. In the preamble there is a recognition that the inherent dignity and the equal in and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice and peace in the world. Article 3, everyone has the right to life, liberty and security of person. 
Even if detention centres, onshore and offshore, were physically perf perfect places with electricity and water and medical care and proper food and hygiene and people had their own privacy in their own rooms, they still deny people the liberty of person that is their human right and so we will not stop until all those detention centres are gone. Article 5. No one shall be subjected to torture or to cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment. Well, guess what? The UN found that both on Manus and Nauru, that was happening. Torture, cruel, inhuman and degrading treatment. It is not good enough. Article 9. No one shall be subjected to arbitrary arrest, detention or exile. Of all the people who had arrived on boats after the 19th of July 2013, they were separated into three groups. Some of them were sent to Nauru, some of them were sent to Manus, and 1,414 people, 1,414 people came to Australia, applied for asylum and were allowed to settle here. There is no reason why the people sent to Manus and Nauru can't come here too, since it was an arbitrary decision that sent them there in the first place. <laughs> Article 14. Everyone has the right to seek and to enjoy in other countries asylum from persecution. And unless in Australian law, like some totalitarian regime, human rights are outlawed, it is not illegal for anyone to do that and it doesn't matter how they do it, how they arrive here, what the mode of transporta transportation is. <laughs> Article 15, everyone has the right to a nationality. No one shall be arbitrarily deprived of his nationality nor denied the right to change his nationality. So for those stateless people in Australia, with permanent protection, they have a right to apply for citizenship here and the right to be given it. <laughs> Article 19. Everyone has the right to freedom of opinion and expression. This right includes freedom to hold opinions without interference and to seek, receive and impart information and ideas through any media and regardless of frontiers. Freedom of speech does not mean a green light for lies, propaganda, hate speech or fear-mongering. And those people who think that they have the right to free speech without the responsibility for the results, the consequences of inciting hatred, well, I'll tell you what, no. Do not. We all recognise that war is a huge driver in the creation of refugees but so is the denial of human rights. The number of refugees worldwide reflects a current situation where human rights and civil liberties have been eroded and denied in many countries. One of these countries is Myanmar, where Rohingya people have been a persecuted minority for generations. Stateless in their home country, they have no rights to education or work, and their movement is highly restricted. They have survived repeated attempts at ethnic cleansing and genocide, with the latest disaster happening in August this year, and up to 800 Rohingya men, women and children forced to flee. 
many of them to nearby Bangladesh over a matter of mere months. There are only 170 Rohingya refugees on Manus and Nauru, not many. They have been there four and a half years and have been offered, at the same time as the genocide, $25,000 to return to Myanmar. I know of two who have lost every single member of their family. Offering people money to return to danger is not the actions of a moral or responsible government. Shame. We could bring these 170 refugees here and not send them back. We could take every person from Manus and Nauru and bring them here and it wouldn't dint in any way the number of refugees that are there worldwide. It is not even a drop in the ocean to the number of people that Bangladesh, an extremely poor country, has taken under their wing. There is no reason why Australia can't bring 20,000 Rohingya refugees from camps such as Cox's Bazaar and do more in the region to support the many other refugees and work to establish peace and safety in those home countries. But to date, the Australian government has refused to take the actions needed to save lives. Meanwhile, these refugee camps are not safe places. Disease, starvation, dangers face the many survivors of the worst atrocities committed by the Myanmar military. Shame. Perhaps some of us may remember in May 2015 the Rohingya boat crisis in the Andaman Sea when Indonesia, Malaysia and Thailand copied Tony Abbott's turn back the boats policy and several hundred refugees died as a result. What were the boats involved in Operation Sovereign Borders doing at this time? They were anchored at Christmas Island for a full week at the height of the crisis so that they wouldn't be in danger of saving anyone as they would surely have to do under international maritime law. Article 98 refers to the duty to render assistance, to proceed with all possible speed to the rescue of persons in distress, if informed of their need of assistance, of assistance insofar as such action may reasonably expected of him. Abbott, in conjunction with Dutton, showed their lack of concern for people dying at sea. They are nothing more than hypocrites. Uh, we've just got Wade Zazai on the phone, direct from Manus. Uh, we'll put him on now. Good afternoon, my friends and allies. Thank you so much for coming. My name is uh, Walid Zazai, as you all maybe <laughs> already know me. And I am an Afghan refugee who has been a prison on Manus Island by the Australian government for over four years. First of all, I would like to thank each of you for coming here today to stand with us in defending our human rights. Your solidarity has helped us continue our fight for freedom, safety, and peace. 
I wish to recognize the first people of Australia and their deep love of country and their long struggle for freedom against injustice. We have shared humanity. I also wish to recognize a very important victory for human rights in Australia this week. So I want to congratulate to all of the Australians from here. Congratulations to all of you for achieving that victory for human rights. Marriage equality was finally achieved for years. Members of LGBTIQ community were treated as second-class citizens simply for who they loved. We here on Manus are sorry that your right to love was debated and used as political currency. We know how hurtful these words can be as we too have been dehumanized and used in political games. On Manus Island, we celebrate with Australia and are pleased that our allies and friends in the LGBTI community are finally having their human rights recognized. This amazing result shows that while the Australian government is cruel, the majority of Australians stand for love, peace and equality. 69 years ago, 69 years ago today, Australia was one of the 48 member countries of the United Nations that voted to adopt the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. However, the Australian government has not honored its commitment. Australia agreed that everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of person. And yet for almost five years, we have been detained here, unable to hug our families, friends, to further our education, work, and support ourselves and our loved ones. Australia agreed that no one should be subjected to torture or to cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment. And yet we are tortured and degraded here every day. And more, Australia agreed that no one should be subjected to arbitrary arrest, detention or exile, and yet we have languished here in prison for almost five years, having committed no crime. Australia agreed that everyone has the right to seek asylum for, from persecution, and yet the Australian government won't let us to come to Australia and refused to let us to go to New Zealand, when all we want is to live our lives in freedom and safety. Please let me finish by asking you to keep speaking for us, to yell for us, to scream for us. I would say again my words that please keep putting peaceful but now democratic pressure on the people who hold our freedom in their hands. To the Liberal and Labour Party, please respect our human rights and the pain detention inflict on us. Please bring us to Australia. We will make it our home. We will give you our hearts, and with every action, we will show our thanks. And I'm again so thankful to all of you for coming out today for us. 
to support us, to stand with us. And as I have taken promise from you guys last time, I would also again want to ask you a question to promise me that you will stand with us uh, until equal, like, uh, one person will live there and you will stand for him. Will you be stand for us until we get freedom in a safe country? I think it is worth acknowledging there has been a shift. People are, are outraged, even by what happened with the beating of refugees with metal poles, denying them water, denying them food. We have seen recently not just union contingents at our rallies, but the National Union of Workers called a rally to bring them here in Springvale. We've seen rallies in uh, Macmillan. At today's um, rally, I would like to acknowledge in particular the contingent from the, the Vietnamese for refugees over there, make them welcome. I would like to acknowledge the Jews for Refugees contingent. We are seeing more and more of these contingents here. And on Human Rights Day, we will stand together. Human rights are all our rights. If we don't stand up for others, we don't have our own. Touch one, touch all. In that regard, we stand also against Islamophobia, the Islamophobia that Trump is using in his band and that Turnbull is taking up. And we are very proud to introduce our next speaker, Mohammed Mohadeen, the President of the Islamic Council of Victoria. Please make him welcome. Thank you, Chris. Assalamu alaikum and peace to everyone. I had a written speech that I wanted to deliver, but I'm going to put it away and talk from my heart. Today we stand together asking for a fair go for all. No one wants to be a refugee. No one seeks to be a refugee. It is circumstances that makes one a refugee. Our country has been responsible for the wars in some of the Middle Eastern countries, which has brought about refugees. We have had refugees take boats, putting their lives at risk. Children have died. No parent wants that to happen. People are putting themselves in risk to find a place, a safe haven. But what happens here today? Unfortunately, our governments, both the Labour and the Liberal Party, have put these refugees in camps, incarcerated them. They have been tortured. We have heard speeches. I can see around lots of faces who have died as well in these camps. This must stop. We need to bring them back here. There's enough of room in Australia and enough of open hearts to achieve this. So we stand together to fight against this action to, and also to bring people back to Australia. We are one nation. We are one human race and refugees are part of this race. Thank you for all your support and thank you to the organizers for the organizing this event. Asalaamu Alaikum. Thank you, Mohammed. I know it's, a, it's been a long time out here and it's very hot in the sun. Please don't get yourself burnt. Please make sure you've got some shade. We saw recently the parliament um, introduce welcomely uh, equal marriage. But I think it is worth pointing out in all of the celebrations, some of the hypocrisy 
that we still have LGBTI refugees on Manus where homosexuality is punishable by up to 14 years jail. Where is the fight for their rights? And Peter Dutton says that he will stand up for Australians and strong borders. And that sometimes gets an, uh, an echo in people who say, let's stand up for our own first. And I just want to point out that refugees are our own. They are our brothers and sisters. They sought asylum here. And the cruelty doesn't stop at the borders. You know, don't be fooled. The people who will beat refugees with metal poles, who will starve them and deny them water, are not going to look after us. They're not the people who are going to close the gap. They're not the people who are going to fund the National Disability Insurance Scheme properly. They're not the people in the working class migrant suburb of Broadmeadows where I teach who will fund the schools properly or will provide jobs where unemployment has gone from 10 to 22% in three years. They won't stand up for the unionists who are fighting for their rights on the docks and they won't stand up for any of us. And again, I want to point to that old union slogan, touch one, touch all. We will not shut up, we will not go away until everyone on Manus and everyone on Nauru is free and safe and secure and brought here. There's a um, couple of upcoming events. RAC has meetings every Monday. Everybody's welcome at the Nurses' Union Building, 535 Elizabeth Street. RAC's having a strategy day on January 13 at the Nurses' Union Building next year to talk about what we need to do in the coming year, how we need to keep up the fight. Uh, I will now introduce our last speaker. Hey, Melbourne! Sorry to interrupt the party, it's fine, it's just that we've got about hundreds of men on Manus just starving and we're here buying our McDonald's, it's fine. Hey Melbourne, sorry to interrupt the party, it's just that the other day I was jogging the streets of Melbourne and I realised how dusty my hands had become if they were just sitting on the shelves. Just sitting on the shelves, not doing anything, so all I do is perspire my coins into coffee slots and perspire my posts into newsfeed shots. It dawns on me. Compassion is timed now. Scheduled into rallies. Occupations now expire at 4 p.m. on Saturdays or midnight for the dedicated and then we go on. And we can have our shot of activism, great. Hey, I'm sorry to break up the party, Melbourne. It's just that I'm done with distracting, 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 distracting myself. Because I have been given lenses that close off. And now I can't see the plead of the men no matter how much they protest because we are designed to have a look at what is seen on the media. And if we can't see what's on the media, then we don't have anything to watch. Hey, Melbourne, I'm sorry to break up the party. It's just that a part of my heart was taken way away on that island and a part of our hearts was taken way away on that island and we can't get our bodies there now, so what can we do with our dusty hands sitting on the shelves? We can walk with our feet proud for marches and marches and marches and marches and marches and, marches and then what? What are we going to do after? 
every rally that comes over? What are we going to do after every time we've screamed our lungs out saying, bring them here, and then what? What am I going to do? How can we be heard? How can we have our mouths move in a way that he can see us enough so that he can sign that paper because our hands are unworthy of an opinion? Hey, Melvin, I'm sorry to break up the party, man. It's just that standing around for an hour is not enough if that's the only thing we do. So what's next? I have one piece of information, that's all I know. After this march, we're going to occupy a certain intersection and we're going to have a peaceful protest with music and we're gonna shake to the human spirit of ourselves. And it's up to us to decide what we're gonna do after that with our dusty hands on the shelves in our hearts that are distracted, distracted, distracted. And it's up to me to decide what I'm gonna do with my eyes next time I look at the news and what I'm gonna do with my mouth next time someone spits an Islamophobic comment. And what I'm gonna do with my feet. And it's up to us. So after this march, let us start with that occupation and shake our bodies and peacefully protest. Thank you. My name is Selva Coolidgelvin and I am fighting for my life 37 months I've been held, I miss my child, I miss my wife Escape the clutches of the men with guns, Sri Lanka was my home Australia put me in a prison camp, now it's three years gone Here they treat me like a worthless human being Do they see me as a worthless human being? Well, they do not know Officials here, they question me They say they want me to return But how can I go back now When I've seen my people burn? It's hard to go on living when your future is denied Yes, we'll wear you down, it's true, I could be one more suicide So say I'm not a worthless human being Cause no one needs a worthless human being My family need a worthwhile human being So they can know girl wasn't even born when I crossed the raging sea My daily voice on the telephone is all she knows of me 
I hold a photo in my hand and I dream of a better time. How do I explain her dad's in jail when I'm guilty of no crime? Can you see me as a worthwhile human being? Only I want to be a worthwhile human being. Can you let me be a worthwhile human being? We all need to know. Thanks, Les Thomas. That's the song for Selva. Uh, and uh, the we're, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and we were down at uh, the streets of Melbourne on Human Rights Day. That was the 10th of the 12th. Uh, no irony intended in regard to International Human Rights Day, I'll have to say. Lots of work needs to be done. And on the line, we've got uh, Jeff Fielder. G'day, Jeff. How are you? G'day, Annie. Yeah, you're from uh, Fair Go for Pensioners, and your expertise is actually uh, housing, isn't it? And uh, we've just recently just got a press release from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, the AIW. HW, who uh, said that 19% jump in Victorians seeking homeless help as impact of housing crisis takes hold. Is it a crisis? It's an absolute crisis, Annie, and um, the really terrible thing about it is, like lots of other areas of um, government policy, it's a crisis that's been going on for a long time. And we'd say it really began back in the 1980s when governments decided to move away from funding public housing and expecting that everyone can try and survive in the private private rental market. And that's why we're seeing such massive increases in the homelessness statistics. Um, but also in the private rental market, we've just done some research recently in Victoria that shows that um, for older people, we're particularly concerned about um, people on age pensions and other benefits um, who are trying to survive in the private rental market, um, we found that 80% of people aged 65 years of age and over in the private rental market in, in Victoria are, are paying more than 30% of their income in rent. And even worse than that, half of those people are paying 50% or more of their income in rent. So what that means for people is that we know that there are literally... Um, tens of thousands of, of older people, let alone everyone else who's trying to struggle paying their rent, are doing without really basic essentials of life like food and medications and things like that. So this failure of government policy where they're not building public housing, um, and it, we haven't been building public housing for about 30 years, means that we've got people who are struggling so much just not just being able to afford their rent, but doing without food and medication and all the other, other essentials of life. Because there's a whole lot of kick-on effects, aren't there, Jeff, for society in general? And, yeah, and these are these are clearly demonstrated now. We know the evidence is there that this is the impact this this policy is having. So, 
ever since the government decided that um, you know the Commonwealth Lend Assistance Program um, was a was actually a, a government decision to go down that track to give people a small subsidy to t- try and top up their uh, their income to help them pay their private rent rather than putting you know money into public housing what we used to have in the 1980s and you know back to the second world war was governments every year had a target of increasing public housing by a certain amount each year you know it might be 50,000 new dwellings every year that would be built nationally but because we haven't been doing any of that there's it's been flatlining ever since the 1980s what we've got is now an absolute shortage of of housing of affordable housing we're talking about you know up around 6 700,000 homes that are now needed just to get us back to square one with uh, where we're going to start to address this problem. So there, there's going to be a big campaign that's going to start um, from next early next year, but a national campaign that's going to be calling for an extra uh, 500,000 affordable homes to be built in Australia. And this is the sort of um, language we need to be using and the sorts of numbers we need to be talking about if we're going to start to address this really drastic problem. Yeah, now affordability is a really interesting issue, isn't it? Uh, I just, we, there was a, 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 um, a forum that was held at uh, the uh, Flemington Community Health Centre, uh, Community Centre last week, which I will be giving more, uh, uh, playing that over the summer period, some of the things that came out there. And uh, it it was put on by uh, Melbourne University, uh, a a, a department of the Melbourne University. They're very interested in this. whole collection of people there, they were talking about affordability. And uh, also something else that came out, very interesting uh, piece of uh, public uh, stance, Uh, the... uh, the uh, social planner for uh, Moreland Council, he directed a, ca- a question to uh, the uh, Tenants Union, Australian Tenants Union representative, uh, the te- about uh, the notion that public housing tenants who are now bearing the brunt of the Victorian government's plan to renew public housing, which is just apparently just getting rid of public uh, housing tenants so that they can give a whole lot of land to private developers dressed up as being a renewal project. He he asked the uh, Australian Public uh, 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 Tenants Association man, uh, why did he think that uh, public tenants were confused. They actually weren't confused. They, if, if All the people that he'd spoken to uh, had basically been co- appeared to be co- coerced into signing pieces of paper which they weren't allowed to take and get a third uh, opinion, you know, get someone with some expertise to look at the contracts that were being put under their noses, that sort of stuff. Have, have you uh, been... Uh, uh, feeling in your research that uh, people in public housing are really under the pump when it comes to government policy? Well, yeah, and I'd, I'd add to that, Any, we've also heard that um, with a lot of people from a culturally and linguistically diverse background that, that uh, there are many people in that situation living in public housing uh, that, that we've, we've heard um, 
been suggested that, that they weren't provided with interpreters and things like that when these documents were provided. So, yeah, the the government is trying to, to railroad this through. And the terrible thing about it, um, the tragedy, is that because we've had pub, really good public housing in the past in terrific locations across Melbourne, uh, you know, in a lot of the real, you know, inner city suburbs, close to services and transport and all sorts of things that people need. As you're saying, governments are just trying to get rid of um, responsibility for, for public housing. And so they're wanting to divide up these estates, give the give the land to a private developer so that they, they pay for the redevelopment of public housing only on half the land. They get the other half of the land for, you know, for, for nothing, basically. And... Um, but they're all they're talking about at best is a ten percent increase in the public housing stock and on half using on half the land. The, 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 this this thing about using percentages it's it's uh, the cruelty of this is this way of uh, you know this mealy mouthed um, sort of publicity campaign that governments put together and corporations put together, uh, which make people think that something is uh, a good thing. Uh, but of course, the devil's in the detail, isn't it? When they say ten percent yeah. increase, there's no increase in public housing going on here. They're talking about the amount of bedrooms, or no? Exactly. Yeah, sorry, it just yeah. makes me furious. Yes, yes, you're right. It, it, they're talking about, you know, it's not increasing the numbers of dwellings at all. It's, it's you might get an increase in bedrooms, perhaps, but the evidence in past of private public developments like this is that the increase has been negligible. But the big thing that we're losing out of this is this prime land that should all be redeveloped. You know, we, you know, there's nothing wrong with renewing estates. We, you know, that, that does need to be done from time to time. And that it provides an opportunity not just to use all of the land for renewing for public housing, but you can increase the density as well to some extent. So we could get, you know, not just, um, you know, possibly a doubling or tripling of the of the public housing stock on that prime land in these great locations. So, you know, the government's just handing this, this land over, getting, yes, at best 10%, but we think that's very um, arguable whether that's going to get anywhere near that. And as I was saying before, this is about a flatlining program of of not having any commitment whatsoever to... To, to public housing, and government try to just abrogate their responsibilities because the, then they transfer the stock across to community housing providers and say, well, it's your problem. You're, you're responsible for dealing with this now. It's not, not something that governments are, are required to address. So th- this is the real tragedy of it, is that governments don't believe that housing is a responsibility. They talk about it as a cost on the purse, but... They don't talk about that in terms of education or transport or those areas. They say that housing has to make a profit. Well, why? It should be a service that's provided like everything else because everyone has a right to have a decent home. Well, no, the thing about it is, and it was argued at that uh, uh, forum, but actually public public housing tenants actually pay rent. 
It's not like, yeah. you know, they yeah. actually do pay rent. And one person argued that it had actually on the books shown a profit. One of the community housing people there said that uh, that was arguable. But the thing that was interesting about the, without being too uh, aggressive to community housing uh, operatives, but uh, one of the things that really made me cool, it's this idea that, yes, we've got a terrible situation, but I'm a pragmatist. And that's why we have to have social housing and community housing instead of public housing. You know, that word pragmatism, which yeah. is, well, yeah. That, that, that's right. And um, so what do we do? We, we, all, all the argument is about is, uh, you know, getting a little bit, of, little bit better, better arrangement or getting a slight improvement in the, in the numbers or something like that. We're, rather we're dying than, slowly know, instead of quickly. Yeah, yeah, rather than putting all our energies into campaigning for, you know, it's got so complicated in many ways too now. We've got all these different housing providers where all people want is a decent roof over their head and it's not rocket science to provide that. Just good basic accommodation for people to live in. We don't need a complicated system. Government can provide it. It's, it always gets back, and even the community housing providers say this, they can't really, you know, go out and, and borrow all sorts of money from banks um, because, you know, one, one thing is they don't have title to borrow against. So it, it all get, always gets back to government are the only ones who are going to make this work. And it, unless they recommit to, to a policy framework that's about increasing public housing stock as an annual, on an annual basis as part of its normal budget cycle, that every year, as I say, from the eight, back in the 80s and, and earlier than that, it was always about every budget announcement every year included an increase in public housing stock. It was normal business, and we've forgotten that. We've forgotten that this is a right that we need to always ensure that the people on low incomes have got somewhere decent to live. And the homelessness statistics that you just read out, we've seen increases right across the board with more women... Um, who are facing homelessness, more older people, every single category, as we've seen massive increases in people who are, you know, and homelessness isn't just about people sleeping rough, that's increasing significantly. We're talking about people sleeping in their cars, we're talking about people living in sheds, couch surfing is going through the roof, overcrowding, people, you know, having to share accommodation because no one can afford to rent in the private market anymore. Um, but we don't have, you know, there's, there's just not enough room to, to house all of these people on low income. The the whole situation is becoming so dire that we've got to we've got to get governments to recommit to to funding public housing in a in a really significant way. So, Jeff, you were saying there was a campaign starting up again. I mean, there, there is a campaign, but how can people become involved in the 2018 period? Yeah, well, there's um, there's there's a couple of there's a couple of campaigns as you alluded to the, the one about anti privatisation of public housing in Victoria, and um, uh, organisations like the one that I directly uh, work with is uh, Housing for the Aged Action Group. You can contact us if you want more information about that, and we're strongly connected with uh, Fairgo for Pensioners and other organisations around that campaign. 
But um, I don't have the direct details at this stage about the big national campaign that's going to kick off from March next year. All right, it's so we need to keep our we need to keep our ears and eyes open. Yeah, it will be a really high profile campaign, though. That's what we can promise people that there's a lot of resources being gathered at the moment to to bring this together to really push governments to the to the next election to commit, as I said, to increasing public housing stock by five hundred thousand dwellings. And as I say, these are the sorts of figures, not 10% or, you know, minimal amounts at best of getting increases. We need to be talking about hundreds of thousands of new dwellings. We need billions of dollars to be committed to this. If I could just say one other thing, Annie, it's it's not just what occurred a long time ago either. It's not just about what happened in the 80s and before that. When we had the global economic crisis and the Rudd government um, introduced a range of you know, things to try and stimulate the economy. They also included um, what was called nation-building funding, and they committed $6 billion over three years. And this is between 2009 and 2012, so really recently, that built 20,000 new public and affordable housing dwellings across Australia in that three-year period. So it can be done. But the problem at that time was that it was described as an economic plan just to try and keep the economy going. It was about jobs and that sort of thing, which is really important. But we need that to be described as a housing policy. That housing policy needs to say we're increasing our housing stock by 50,000, by 100,000 dwellings. This is the kind of uh, thing we've got to push governments to do. And we really uh, will let everyone know about this campaign when it kicks off next year. Thanks very much for talking to us today, Jeff. Pleasure, Eddie. That was Jeff uh, Fielder from uh, Fairgoes for Pensioners. If you're getting ready for the end of the year and celebrations, don't forget 3CR. Excellent news, dear listener. It's that time of year. We once again are selling two delicious wines generously donated by local winemaking star and 3CR supporter Luke Lambert. At $17.50, these wines are a super bargain, labelled especially for us, and they're even cheaper by the dozen or half dozen. Perfect as a gift or to fill a raised glass to toast 3CR at those summer festivities. Give us a call on 9419 8377 to order. Or you can go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Wines are available for collection from 3CR up until December 22. Ain't no mountain high enough to keep me from them. Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio. And streaming at 3cr.org.au. You're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and as I said, I was going to tell you about 
upcoming rally today at 11 o'clock. It should be really good fun. It's not just a, you're not just a, doing a feel-good event. Uh, are you, Phil Cleary? We've got you on the line here talking about the upcoming event that's uh, going to start at 11 a.m. in support of the uh, Queen Victoria Market. It's going to be a great event. Well, look, we hope so. Um, it's been a contracted battle down there at the Vic Market. You know, the management have a particular approach via Robert Doyle, the, the Lord Mayor of Melbourne. We're opposed to it. We think it'll destroy the fabric of the market. I mean, they've already been granted permission to build a massive tower on the old Mercat Hotel uh, apartment, uh, an apartment uh, block. You know, we wonder how many more apartments do we need? What's happening to the fabric of, of inner Melbourne and its its uh, architectural landscape? But then we move to the market, and they want to rip up sheds A, B, C, and D, which are heritage sheds. They're, they're places of great atmosphere and fabric and movement, and uh, uh, that will result in a massive excavation for car parking and refrigeration, and who knows how many of those sheds uh, will be able to be restored in their original form. What what will replace the kind of open-air market settings we have there? Will it become an entertainment precinct, uh, you know, a sanitised, yet another sanitised supermarket? So we've, we've got to challenge, we've got to challenge it, we've got to try to understand it in the whole culture of the developers who are just rampaging across Melbourne. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, Phil, because it's about government policy once again and, and uh, tactics in order to uh, manipulate, as you said, uh, the landscape that everybody at uh, the community actually is involved in, things that are important. As someone said uh, when I was organising this interview, she said that I suppose that the market does really matter. Well, you'd like to think so, Annie. I mean, look, I travel, uh, I like travelling and, you know, I go to European places uh, and old towns and I marvel at history. Uh, I love the sense of place, an old building. I go to the village where my people came from uh, over in Limerick and there's an old stone building there, just a cabin. And I reflect on what generations of my people and the clan were doing in that little village and I go up to Dalesford and there's an old house there that my great-grandparents lived in and all this, these Irish, you know, immigrants settled there. And you think of the difficulties as they were virtual. They were refugees, you know, mm. from the famine of Ireland. And I, I, I hate the idea of those places disappearing. We, we need them in our lives. It's a reminder of our history and life, life, life continuing on. And I look at it in the same way with the Victoria market. The fact is it doesn't need to be refurbished in the way the Lord Mayor imagines. He wants to refurbish it, renovate it in his image uh, as a, a, a sanitised food setting. But, uh, uh, food. Uh, what is it, a connoisseur food hall? Yeah, that's right. You can see it. You can see that that's what he's really up to. Whereas we love the rambling nature of the market. It's a beautiful place. The voices, the faces, the sense of history that you have there. Look, we're quite up for refurbishing, uh, clean up the sheds, polish them up. Uh, we, we were keen to have a strategy that involved 
renewable energy. We, we, we argued for renewable energy capacity of the market, uh, but we want to involve the traders in the, in the policies and the strategies. And you know the truth is they've never done that. Yeah. They've just marched in in this autocratic fashion and told people they have to do certain things, and it's been mired in uncertainty too. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, uh, like you say, the traders, uh, once uh, once they realised that uh, they were actually being sidelined, they even uh, got themselves politically astute and uh, put someone up for council and even that was... Yeah. And they got onto council and then that was a white anted. Well... Yeah, Michael Kiefer was ran on our ticket when I ran for Lord Mayor, and he was elected. But could you believe he gets elected, and we find that one of the candidates was ineligible to be elected, and they did a recount, in, and the recount resulted in Michael Kiefer not being the member any longer of council. It was the most absurd gerrymander you could imagine. So the trader gets elected, someone else is ineligible, and the trader is not reappointed. I mean, in the Senate, it's pretty straightforward. You replace like with like. But they didn't do that in the Melbourne City Council. And Robert Doyle, you know, his mob were pretty keen to see Michael Kiafer, uh stripped of his position. Uh, so, the, yeah, the workers did organise. They joined the National Union of Workers. So they, they formed, they formed uh, a union branch a, 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 down at the Vic Market. Which that is was really important. Yeah, yeah, because that was the very first time in Australian history that traders who are small business people small business, yeah. joined a union. That's how serious it yeah. is. Yeah, that, that's right. And and they were they organised uh, really efficiently and developed really clear ideas about the market and its future. They accept that there are things that can be improved at the market. But they would argue that the promotion of the market's been terrible. We've had a series of CEOs come and go. We've got a board of management that really doesn't know anything about the market's history and how traders operate. We've got this so many remarkable people down there trading. You could go on forever about the quality of the food. It's 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 fresh food. The, the turnover's quick. It's not not this mass refrigerated food style. There are quality foods. You go to the Luke down at the egg eggporium, you know, and his family there and talk to him about how he does eggs, where the eggs come from. Small farmers all over Victoria who are running, you know, beautiful little farms with with uh, hens that are looked after. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, so what you're really so saying is... love about the place. You, what, what, yeah, so what you're really saying is that this is... Uh, the market allows consumers, people to not just interact as people and build community, but to actually sidestep the, uh, you know, uh, sealed, a corporate sealed protected yeah. space of uh, produce and uh, uh, other foods. I couldn't, I, that is exactly how it is. That is exactly how it is. I couldn't have put it any better. It's, it's, that is the truth of the matter, and that's why we love the place. Uh, and you know, just touching on that that sense of community, it's 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 real. I often say, any people go there, they feel happy. There's a great a community atmosphere, great conversation down at the big market. 
People wander around, they bump into people they know, they stop with their trolleys, they have a yarn, there's good banter, there's noise. It's a lovely place. It's good for the mental health of Melbourne, I would argue, as well, as well as good for, uh, their, their, for on a dietary level. Um, and so w- we want to look after it, and also diversity of costs, because you can get smart traders who can deal in vegetables, for example, at a lower price, because they turn them over quickly. So there's an op- there's diversity of pricing that's really valuable, and that we believe will be destroyed because it'll be a hegemonic structure that they will they're looking to create at the Victoria market. So would, could you would would it be fair to say that Doyle's plan is a developer's plan? Well, look, that's what I argue. I, I describe it, and I will describe it today as a greedy land grab. Hmm. I, I think it is a land grab, but. They have assessed that acreage of the Victoria market and made a judgment on its value. And they are really saying that they are not getting the return out of it that they could if it was just judged as, as a strictly, in that clinical sense, as a plot of land. I mean, after all, to them, a plot of land is somewhere to build a tower. For them, a plot of land is somewhere to build a car park. That's what they're up to. And... And they don't care for, for the for the elements, uh, the distinctiveness of the Victoria market, in our opinion. So we've got to stop them. And this is one of the greatest open-air markets in the world. And to think that we could lose it, uh, that it could be transformed into a sanitised uh, entertainment precinct is scandalous. It's, it's kind of interesting, too, because it's a bit of... It's classist, in a way, because... Another clo- oh, yes. another closed space that needs an entry fee, which might be, you know, how you dress or how you speak or all those kind of things. Oh, without a doubt. Um, uh, we just we just have to we just have to stop it. There's no question about that. We've got to stop it because. It's going to be uh, the antithesis of what the market is at the present time. And I was just thinking as you're talking about their perception of it, uh, one person within the uh, Melbourne City Council described it to me as primitive. I thought that was really (laughs) instructive. So it's kind of in in keeping with the proposition you're putting there about Mm. the way they they see it it as a secondary kind of uh, setting. It's not. It's to be tarted up. It's a bit like, uh, you know, that thing in the Bible about the God, you know, God creating things in their image. Obviously, that's what they feel like they are down at the city. Well, I've been arguing that. I think they are creating. (laughs) And and we all do that, you know. But the point is, we shouldn't be able to impose that on others. And what they are doing and what Robert Doyle is is imposing uh, his, his kind of understanding of what a market ought to be on the people of Melbourne He's not a shopper at the market. He doesn't shop for food. He eats food. He goes to cafes. He wants a, he wants a nice cafe arrangement down there. And we've got enough of that. Yeah. He, he's not a, he's, not a, he's not, a, not a bloke or a woman with a trolley marching through the market or a set of bags, stopping for a yarn. That's not his understanding of what a market is. For him, it's a, it's a, it's a fabricated, sanitised, um, sophisticated eatery. And that's not what we want. Well, you're going to be down there at 11 a.m. Uh, with Jane Clifton as the MC and a whole lot of other people, including 
Father Bob Maguire, Dan Sultan, who is the, one of the best performers of all time. Yeah, Dan Sultan's going to play, and uh, Father Bob's there, and we've got Michael Caton, who's come down from Sydney. Uh, of the castle, the film, so he'll he'll maybe give us a few thoughts about that. Uh, we've got a string of uh, Sigrid Thornton will be speaking just before me. She'll open up. So uh, Mary Lou Howie representing the friends of the uh, Victoria Market, the Facebook page, which is massive, you know, massive. There are thousands and thousands of people going there. And the last part of this little jigsaw puzzle is that I'll be calling on on the people of Melbourne to support a community picket if we don't win the day politically. And I'll be calling on people to advise politicians that if they want to go with Robert Doyle's plan, they'll go against us. Yeah. Thanks very much for talking okay. to us. Good on you. Righto. See ya. When I see you coming down the 
street these days I think it might be better if I hide But I know you're gonna find me when you try When you ask where I've been, well you know I'm gonna But I wasn't lying when I said that I would never let you down Said I will never let you down Said I will never let you down And of course that's Dan Sultan and he'll never let you down. Go down there at 11 am to Vic Market and be part of a positive future for Queen Vic Market. Go and hear what they've got to say, important stuff. Uh, and uh, we're going to go to a report that came out of Thursday Breakfast. Wonderful uh, of people doing stuff on Thursday Breakfast uh, and throughout the week on 3CR at breakfast time. Uh, the report was uh, about the uh, announcement that Dr Gary Johns was going to be the new commissioner of the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profit Commission, Profits Commission. Now, this is the commission that is, uh, looks at uh, various things to do with uh, tax deductibility, that type of stuff. And, uh, uh, and what, there's been a big f- a push by the... Uh, Turnbull government to uh, make advocacy organisations like uh, uh, for environment, uh, for uh, uh, fairness in our community, that advocacy uh, disallowing those people from the uh, benefit of the umbrella of being a charity, which makes them tax deductible. And we're talking about Friends of the Earth, a whole range of organisations that have actually been incredibly effective in bringing to people's minds uh, the important issues that make our community strong, uh, apart from the economic uh, battles uh, that... um, uh, big business and increasingly governments that only represent big business, uh, their desire to basically rape and pillage society as well as the uh, ground we we walk on. Now, Cam Walker, who's the uh, who works at who's part of uh, Friends of the Earth, he um, gave a chat with uh, the people. He's campaigns coordinator for Friends of the Earth. He talked about what has increasingly been called the bizarre appointment of Dr um, Gary Johns, who has been an ongoing... uh, uh, Well, I I, I don't really have to tell you this because uh, Cam Walker will explain why he is such a... uh, um, it's not it's not an appointment that shows even handedness it's an appointment it's sort of like a uh, a trump appointment you know the types of people that you put in charge of the environment who are actually more about the destruction of environment so the acnt was set up basically to manage the whole of the charity sector so that welfare services, international aid, environmental organisations and the rest of it. And at the time, the movement or the sector, if you like, felt it was a good idea because um, at present, as an environmental NGO, we report to the ATO plus 
to the Federal Environment Department and other groups report to other entities within the, go- uh, the government. And so it was presented as a way to centralise and streamline reporting and accountability and therefore to reduce what the government loves to talk about, which is red tape. Uh, but the way it is played out now is uh, this is just a really blatantly political appointment. Um, it really is a remarkable oh, appointment. Oh, we have to uh, go away from there because we've got Will Tracy and this is actually really important news. G'day, Will. How are you? Hello, Annie. How are you? Great. Now, um, Will Tracy, for people who don't know, is the Assistant Secretary of the MUA National and uh, you were in... Uh, negotiations over yesterday, it was really just yesterday that it was uh, decided that uh, the WebDoc uh, issues had been resolved. Can you talk to those issues? Look, I can to some extent, Annie. They were still before the courts on a, uh, a number of matters initiated by ourselves um, and by the company, but certainly uh, overnight on Thursday there was an um, offer of a circuit breaker um, by the company leading into Christmas. Uh, and that was to reinstate the union delegate uh, on full pay. Um, we're still, well, while we're in dispute and working through the details of what's going on, but, uh, yeah, it was certainly a welcome um, um, circuit breaker, I think, for all concerned, given the nature of the dispute that was in place. We went round and addressed, went down and addressed the community um, to ensure that um, uh, that we're able to put the message um, about the breakthrough that came through and, um, gratefully, they, uh, the picket was lifted and um, they're able to resume work. Uh, what I will add, though, is that the port is obviously still in dispute. That terminal is still in dispute. We have a number of issues there that haven't um, changed and uh, the two key issues at the centre of the dispute still remain, and that is that we have a company that has, um, through what we would say corrupt processes, put together uh, an enterprise agreement uh, at that site uh, for uh, waterfront workers that undercuts the industry wages and conditions by 40%. And it, the reason why we say that the process was corrupt is that they uh, put this agreement together in the same fashion uh, that we saw at CUB in a manner that we've seen reflected in a number of sites where there are the big big disputes uh, in Victoria as we speak, and SA Longford uh, is one of them. We saw the disputed streets um, and the continued... Uh, tactics by employers to um, seek opportunistically um, and corruptly the um, advantages they can get under the Fair Work Act to use small groups of workers to bring in agreements that will undercut wages and conditions in the vicinity of 34% across the industry. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because VICT is a big multinational company right across the world. They've been shown to use this as their business model, isn't it? Yes, certainly. Um, uh, ICTSI, which is the parent company of VICT, is a company whose business model around the globe, generally they go into third world countries. Their CEO is on the record as saying he prefers to operate in countries where there are dictatorships. It certainly suits their business model. Um, And they go into uh, countries with a uh, low-wage undercutting of local contractor-type model. We've just seen them recently uh, in PNG where they went into operate new terminals there and wanted to um, uh, sack uh, 600 local workers up there um, and bring in cheaper workers. Uh, And that's the business model that they've sought to roll out around the world. Uh, And they've bought that same thing here and they've been able to exploit our own industrial system. I don't think it's any secret to anyone that the current industrial system is broken. 
the rules don't work. They work against the interests of working people in this country, unfortunately, and in the interests of big business um, and the corporate right-wing neoliberal agenda. Uh, and this company's just made the most of that, uh, just has have a number of other companies around Australia, in particular a number in Victoria, and there's been some high-profile disputes along that line. But the ability to, what we've seen here at BICT is the company was unable to negotiate an agreement that matched industry standards with the Waterfront Union, which is the Maritime Union of Australia. And as a result of that, they went and uh, used five supervisors who generally don't come within our agreements and got them to vote up an agreement that undercut the industry wages and conditions by 40%. You know, we've seen undercutting of the hourly rate for casuals by around about $20 an hour. We've seen industry superannuation undercut by 2.5%. We've seen a refusal to acknowledge the industry superannuation scheme so important to the retirement prospects and dignity and respect that people seek in retirement of waterside workers and something that this union's been very proud to support. It's really um, dangerous stuff, isn't it? Yeah, it's a very dangerous workplace and uh, people uh, work very hard to in order to make it a safe place. And uh, this kind of uh, skullduggery, effectively, it's economic uh, skullduggery, uh, one of the aspects of it was, because I think they're so clever, they changed the names of the actual jobs that people do, so therefore, apparently, they weren't covered. Well, what they do is, um, I mean... The function that happens inside a port is to either load or unload ships. And there are many roles that make that happen. And one of the key roles is obviously the lashing function, which is to um, enable... Uh, uh, is, is a process that, that enables the boxes to come on and off once they've been um, set free from the ship, you know, and, and, and you use the cranes to pull them on and off and what have you. But what they've done there is that the, the lashing function or the people who do lashing and pinning and these sorts of things, they now call them automated auxiliary employees instead of lashes. It's the same job that the people who are working there now were doing last year at a different terminal. Uh, but because they've called it a different name, they say it comes under the coverage of a different union and try to exclude the Maritime Union of Australia. I mean, we are the waterfront union in this country. We have 130, 140 years of history on the waterfront and this company seeks to implement an agreement that simply changes the name of the people doing the job that we've done for 100 years and say that we should be excluded from the waterfront on that basis. The... The conduct of the company is, in fact, worse than that because uh, what we see is it's an automated terminal. So what that means is that most of the jobs uh, that are done operating equipment and cranes and what have you are done from people behind computer screens. Um, and what this company has sought to do is to say, uh, and, and, and if we're talking about the issue of safety that you raised earlier, is that they sit behind the people on the computer screens and they openly threaten them that if you uh, don't give us the productivity that we demand or the box rate we're chasing, then we will shift the person operating the, ship, the computer screen to the Philippines where someone will do your job for $15,000 a year. And they hang that over their head uh, week in, week out. Um, and it's one of the... I mean, automation is a cancer. It results in job losses for working people. But every automated job uh, in a workplace in this country and in this state should be done, should remain in this state. There shouldn't be an ability just because it's been done from behind a computer screen to continue to go and seek the lowest wages overseas. That's interesting in itself because uh, I was told that there was an eight-second delay between uh, what happens from the Philippines at the computer set and what was happening in the movement of uh, stuff into a hold. That could be that eight seconds can be. Uh, oh, that's, that's, that's fatal. That's fatal. Yeah, an eight-second eight delay between the person operating the equipment. Um, and the people on the ground 
who operating under the hook, um, whatever it may be, the, the, the stuff that the guys who are on the ship or shore side, an eight-second delay kills someone. That's yeah. the reality. And we've already seen at that terminal the removal of the gatehouse function to the Philippines. You know, th- these are jobs that should remain in Victoria, um, particularly with the decimation of jobs we've seen across the economy um, in the last number of years. Uh, but we see... So, so you were saying that... Uh... Uh, even though there's all this big noting about this big noise being made about security uh, and uh, securing our borders, actually the gates at Webb Dock are controlled from Manila. That's correct. That's correct. <laughs> so, so we have, you, you know, trucks and that who come from the gate gatehouse. Yeah. Um, uh, that that function is operated uh, in another country, um, <laughs> and so once you remove the person from the physical uh, job and the place in which it's done, you can take those jobs anywhere. Um, and uh, what we see through uh, the process of automation that we see on the docks with this particular company um, is the threats to offshore the jobs that they currently do if they don't meet productivity targets. Um, mm. And also, know, it, it was a, a pretty down and dirty. I mean, it, it reveals quite a lot about VICT, uh, that company, because during this dispute, they were <coughs> they were sending out information like uh, the community picket was uh, causing uh, a safety uh, issue to uh, threatening lives because EpiPens weren't being allowed to come in and out even though actually the state government was able to show that EpiPens arrive by plane. That's right, that's right. Look, it, it was part of the media spin that the company put on. And in fact, when the government questioned the company's representatives about, look, what's happening with the EpiPens, the responsible, and, and, and asked them, because right throughout the week, we took uh, the responsible decision to approach the community um, who had been on the picket to say, look, there's been requests to us from people about uh, EpiPens and what have you. Um, and, and, and they said, look, we're not in the business of um, trying to uh, block out some of that essential staff. And as a result of that, we went back to the company, wrote to the company over three successive days saying, look, we want to get moving. And they couldn't identify what the boxes were. And the government put the position on them too and says, look, identify the boxes. They said, we can't. And the question was asked, well, why can't you? I said, well, we don't know where they are. And they said, well, why are you saying that there's EpiPens there? They said, oh, we didn't say it. Industry said it. Oh. Um, now, now, we are talking about a uh, high security zone where every bit of cargo through the manifest is identified um, in every box uh, at every minute of the day. Yeah, well, and that's your business. That's, that's, that's your business, and uh, that's the nature of importing and exporting. You've got to know <laughs> what you're taking on and off the wharf. Um, but they, 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 they misled. Uh, the company that makes the EpiPens contacted the media and said, look, can you stop saying that there's EpiPens stranded on the wharf? We fly them in and contain. Um, and so when we went to uh, reveal that, the response from the company was then to do a personal attack on the person at the centre of uh, the dispute. It was disgraceful behaviour and the Herald picked it up, unfortunately. Yeah, and uh, the uh, Victorian opposition tried to make mileage out of it. Yeah, look, it's, it's an opportunistic dispute for them, I guess. Um, you know, uh, we, we are in there campaigning um, uh, inside the gate to try and make sure that an agreement that undercuts the industry wages and conditions. An agreement I might know that was negotiated by an ex-official of this union. Yeah, um, no. the, H, the HR manager down there, a fellow by the name of Mick O'Leary, um, spent the best part of 30 years earning his living off the membership dues of uh, members of the Maritime Union of Australia and has used the knowledge that he's gained 
to go and uh, opportunistically put together an agreement that undercuts by 40% the wages and conditions of the people he used to represent. It's disgraceful behaviour. Oh, yeah, it's, it's takes your breath away, doesn't it? It does, absolutely. There's slightly more positive uh, outcomes at the moment uh, because obviously negotiations are still continuing, but uh, that uh, dele- union delegate who was e- effectively targeted over a non... Um, uh, uh, him not getting his security pass. Uh, yeah, can I just, I just yeah. want to explain a bit about that because there was a lot made. See, the, the two weeks ago, the company was saying uh, he doesn't have a permit and he'll never get one. Um, and then we got approval for his permit. So the narrative changed to, uh, look, he misled us when he told us he couldn't get a permit. He only told us in November when the paperwork was given to the terminal general manager five months ago. Um, and in fact, every day that a worker goes on to a shift when the ship is alongside, you've got to sign in through security. And those with M6 put their passes through the um, uh, the machine that reads it, and those without M6 sign onto a form. So every day you have to identify yourself who doesn't who doesn't, doesn't have M6. It's not a matter of being able to go in and trying to get by without a permit. This is a security zone. It's, it's about security, security again. Zone. And you have to declare whether you do or don't have one. And every day they've done that, as have 22 other workers who didn't have permits at that site. And what the company did is... Once they got his um, security application forms and the paperwork that was acquired five months ago, they then sat on it for four months until they sent an email saying, we've done an audit, you don't have a permit, and three days later, they speared him as the only one out of 22 who got punted. Mm. So it was a pre... What, it was almost, you know, what they say... Uh, it was pre-planned. Pre-planned, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and it was based around, and this is the issue that we've no, got... You know what I was going to say? say it's like premeditated murder. It, 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 was, it was certainly premeditated behaviour. Yeah. Um, and, uh, look, I mean, what it was based around was, you know, we, we had been running a campaign inside uh, the gate uh, to uh, organise the site, and we were having a huge amount of success. In fact, the worker who got identified and was standing up as the union delegate on site also had claims, uh, and we'd informed the company that there were other claims going to the federal court about the bullying and harassment mm. that had been occurring on site of himself, and he took that on behalf of all the workers who were working inside the terminal, particularly a lot of the threats that have been going on about speeding up work and we'll shift your job, all that sort of stuff that goes on. And most of these threats coming from the ex-official uh, that I identified uh, earlier, Mick O'Leary. But um, he, he stood up and there was court, various court applications on. And before one of them, well, three weeks before one of them was to be heard, was to be heard in fair work, they went down this process and uh, took the uh, decision to terminate him um, after having identified 22 people who were without permits. Well, congratulations. Thanks for giving us a call to tell us, our listeners, what's going on. And as I said, breaking news, the community pickets down and uh, negotiations continue. Congratulations. It's it's a small step, but it's a welcome breakthrough prior to Christmas. I'll say that again. Um, But the the, the port, and we've made that very clear, um, is still in dispute while we try and get around a number of issues. But certainly I think that... uh, it was a um, it was a welcome breakthrough prior to Christmas. So I want to, if, if I can, just take the time to thank uh, the community um, and the broader trade union movement uh, who came out to support the dispute down there and continue to support it. And the many uh, two and a half, three thousand that turned out at the rally uh, Friday ago. If we were unable to resolve this, there was going to be a rally down there this Tuesday that would have attracted about fifteen to twenty thousand people because the community identifies. This offensive corporate behaviour is something that needs to be dealt with both by the broader trade union and the community itself. Thank you very much. Thanks, Annie.
Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.